Chapter 6 of Daniel Boone by Reuben Goldthwaites. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Daniel Boone by Reuben Goldthwaites. Chapter 6 Alone in the Wilderness. In the winter of 1768-69, a peddler with horse and wagon wandered into the valley of the Upper Yadkin, offering small wares to the settlers' wives. This was thrifty John Finley, former fur trader and Indian fighter, who, thirteen years before, had, as we have seen, fraternized with Boone in Braddock's ill-fated army on the Monongahela. Finley had, in 1752, in his trade with the Indians, descended the Ohio in a canoe to the site of Louisville, accompanied by three or four voyagers, and, with some of his dusky customers, traveled widely through the interior of Kentucky. His glowing descriptions of this beautiful land had inspired Boone to try to find it. The latter was still sorrowing over his unpromising expedition by way of the Big Sandy, when, by the merest chance, the man who had fired his imagination knocked at his very door. Throughout the winter that Finley was Daniel's guest, he and his brother Squire were ready listeners to the peddler's stories of the over-mountain country. Tales of countless waterfowl, turkeys, deer, elk, and buffaloes, which doubtless lost nothing in the telling. The two boons resolved to try Finley's proposed route by way of Cumberland Gap, and the fur trader promised to lead the way. After the spring crops were in, Finley, Daniel Boone, and the latter's brother-in-law, John Stewart, started from Daniel's house upon the first of May. In their employ, as hunters and camp-keepers, were three neighbors, Joseph Holden, James Mooney, and William Cooley. Each man was fully armed, clad in the usual deerskin costume of the frontier, and mounted upon a good horse blanket or bearskin was strapped on behind the saddle together with camp kettle a store of salt and a small supply of provisions although their chief food was to be game squire remained to care for the crops of the two families and agreed to reinforce the hunters late in the autumn scaling the lofty blue ridge the explorers passed over stone and iron mountains and reached holston valley whence they proceeded through Moccasin Gap of Clinch Mountain, and crossed over intervening rivers and densely wooded hills until they came to Powell's Valley, then the farthest limit of white settlement. Here they found a hunter's trail which led them through Cumberland Gap. The warrior's path, trodden by Indian war parties from across the mountains, was now discovered, and this they followed by easy stages, until at last they reached what is now called Station Camp Creek, a tributary of the Kentucky River in Estill County, Kentucky. So named because here was built their principal, or Station Camp, the center of their operations for many months to come. While Boone, Finley, and Stewart made frequent explorations, and Boone in particular ascended numerous lofty hills in order to view the country, the chief occupation of the party was hunting. Throughout the summer and autumn, deerskins were in their best condition. Other animals were occasionally killed to afford variety of food, but fur bearers, as a rule, only furnish fine pelts in the winter season. Even in the days of abundant game, the hunter was required to exercise much skill, patience, and endurance. It was no holiday task to follow this calling. Deer, especially, were difficult to obtain. The habits of this excessively cautious animal were carefully studied, 
The hunter must know how to imitate its various calls, to take advantage of wind and weather, and to practice all the arts of strategy. Deerskins were, all things considered, the most remunerative of all. When roughly dressed and dried, they were worth about a dollar each. As they were numerous, and a horse could carry for a long distance about a hundred such skins, the trade was considered profitable in those primitive times, when dollars were hard to obtain. Pelts of beavers, found in good condition only in the winter, were worth about two dollars and a half each, and of otters, from three to five dollars. Thus, a horse load of beaver furs, when obtainable, was worth about five times that of a load of deer skins, and, if a few otters could be thrown in, the value was still greater. The skins of buffaloes, bears, and elks were too bulky to carry for long distances, and were not readily marketable. A few elk hides were needed, however, to cut up into harness and straps, and bear and buffalo robes were useful for bedding. When an animal was killed, the hunters skinned it on the spot, and packed on his back the hide and the best portion of the meat. At night, the meat was smoked or prepared for jerking, and the skins were scraped and cured. When collected at the camps, the bales of skins, protected from the weather by strips of bark, were placed upon high scaffolds, secure from bears and wolves. Our Yadkin hunters were in the habit each day of dividing themselves into pairs for company and mutual aid in times of danger, usually leaving one pair behind as camp keepers. Boone and Stewart frequently were companions upon such trips, for the former, being a man of few words, enjoyed, by contrast, the talkative, happy disposition of his friend. Occasionally the entire party, when the game grew timid, moved for some distance, where they would establish a new camp. But their headquarters remained at Station Camp, where were kept their principal skins, furs, and stores. In this way the time passed from June to December. Boone used to assert, in after years, that these months were the happiest of his life. The genial climate, the beauty of the country, and the entire freedom of this wild life strongly appealed to him. Here this taciturn but good-natured man, who loved solitary adventure, was now in his element. Large packs of skins had been obtained by the little company and stored at station camp and their outlying shelters, and there was now a generous supply of buffalo, bear, and elk meat venison and turkeys all properly jerked for the winter which was before them with buffalo tallow and bear's oil to serve as cooking grease finley and boone were both aware that kentucky lay between the warring tribes of the north and the south that through its warriors paths crossed in several directions and that this probably the finest hunting field in north america was a debatable land frequently fought over by contending savages a dark and bloody ground, indeed. Yet, thus far, there had been no signs of Indians, and the Carolina hunters had almost ceased to think of them. Toward the close of day on the 22nd of December, while Boone and Stuart were ascending a low hill near the Kentucky River, in one of the most beautiful districts they had seen, they were suddenly surrounded and captured by a large party of Shawnees horsemen, returning from an autumn hunt on Green River to their homes north of the Ohio. The two captives were forced to lead the savages to their camps, which were deliberately plundered one after the other of everything in them. The Shawnees, releasing their prisoners, considerately left with each hunter just enough supplies to enable him to support himself on the way back to the settlements. 
The white men were told that was a fact under existing treaties with the tribes. Treaties, however, of which Boone and his companions probably knew nothing, that they were trespassing upon Indian hunting grounds, and must not come again, or the wasps and yellow jackets will sting you severely. The others proposed to leave for home at once, but Boone and Stuart, enraged at having lost their year's work and all that they had brought into the wilderness, and having no sympathy for Indian treaty rights, started out to recover their property. After two days, they came up with the Shawnees, and, secreting themselves in the bushes until dark, contrived to regain four or five horses and make off with them. But they, in turn, were overtaken in two days by the Indians, and again made prisoners. After a week of captivity, in which they were kindly treated, they effected their escape in the dark and returned to station camp. Their companions, giving them up for lost, had departed toward home, but were overtaken by the two adventurers. Boone was gratified to find with them his brother Squire, who, having gathered the fall crops, had come out with a fresh supply of horses, traps, and ammunition. He had followed the trail of his predecessors, and in the New River region was joined by Alexander Neely. Not finding Daniel and Stuart at station camp, and grief-stricken at the report concerning them, he was traveling homeward with the party. Daniel, however, who had staked upon this venture almost all that he owned, did not relish the thought of returning empty-handed. Now that reinforcements had arrived, and determined to stay and seek to regain his lost fortunes, Squire, Stuart, and Neely concluded also to remain, and the four were now left behind in the wilderness. On reaching the Holston Valley, Finley turned northward to seek his relatives in Pennsylvania, while Holden, Mooney, and Cooley proceeded southeastward to their Yadkin homes, carrying dismal news of the events attending this notable exploration of Kentucky. The quartet promptly abandoned station camp as being dangerously near the warrior's path, and, tradition says, built another on or near the northern bank of Kentucky River, not far from the mouth of the Red. The deer season was now over, but beavers and otters were in their prime, and soon the hunters were enjoying a profitable season. A small canoe, which they built, added greatly to their equipment, and they were now enabled to set their traps throughout a wide region. Hunting in pairs, Daniel was generally accompanied by Stuart, while Neely and Squire were partners. In their wanderings, the two pairs were sometimes several days without seeing each other, and frequently partners would be separated throughout the day, but at night met at some appointed spot. One day, toward the close of January, or early in February, 1770, Stuart did not return to the rendezvous, much to Boone's alarm. The following day, the latter discovered the embers of a fire, doubtless built by the lost man, but that was all, for Stuart was seen no more. Five years later, Boone came across the bones of his light-hearted comrade in a hollow sycamore tree upon Rock Castle River. He recognized them by Stuart's name cut upon his powder horn. What caused Stuart's death is a mystery to the present day. Possibly he was wounded and chased by Indians to this distant spot, and died while in hiding. Stuart's mysterious disappearance frightened Neely, who at once left for home, thus leaving Daniel and Squire to pass the remainder of the winter in the wilderness by themselves. Dejected, but not discouraged, the brothers built a comfortable hut and continued their work. With the close of the trapping season, the ammunition was nearly exhausted. 
upon the first of May, a year after Daniel had left his cabin upon the upper Yadkin, squires started out upon the return, their horses well laden with furs, skins, and jerked meat. Both men had, in their enterprise, contracted debts of considerable extent for frontier hunters, hence they were anxious to square themselves with the world, as well as to obtain more horses, ammunition, and miscellaneous supplies. Daniel was now left alone in Kentucky, without bread, salt, or sugar, without company of his fellow creatures, or even a horse or dog. In after years, he acknowledged that he was at times homesick during the three months which followed, and felt deeply his absence from the wife and family, to whom he was so warmly attached. But possessing a cheerful, hopeful nature, he forgot his loneliness in untrammeled enjoyment of the far-stretching wilderness. Almost without ammunition, he could not hunt, save to obtain sufficient food, and largely spent his time in exploration. Fearing Indians, he frequently changed his location, sometimes living in shelters of bark and boughs, and again in caves, but seldom venturing to sleep in these temporary homes, preferring the thickets and the dense cane brakes as less liable to be sought by savage prowlers. Kentucky has a remarkably diversified landscape of densely wooded hills and valleys and broad prairie expanses. The genial climate admirably suited the philosophical wanderer. He enjoyed the exquisite beauty and stateliness of the trees, the sycamores, tulip trees, sugar trees, honey locusts, coffee trees, pow-pows, cucumber trees, and black mulberries, and found flowers in surprising variety and loveliness. The mineral springs interested him. Big Lick, the Blue Licks, the Big Bone Lick, with its fossil remains of mastodons, which had become mired when coming to lick the brackish soil. He traveled far and wide in his search for the beautiful and curious, being chiefly in the valleys of the Licking and the Kentucky, and upon the banks of the Ohio as far down as the site of Louisville, where, at the foot of the falls, he inspected the remains of an old fur-trade stockade concerning which Finley had told him. Once he saw some Indians walking upon the northern bank of the Ohio, but managed himself to keep out of sight. At another time, when on the Kentucky, he saw a savage calmly fishing from the trunk of a fallen tree. In mentioning this incident to his family, in later days, he would declare with gravity, While I was looking at the fellow, he tumbled into the river, and I saw him no more. Probably the man of the Adkin shot him, fearing that the fisherman might carry the news of the former's whereabouts to a possible camp nearby. On another occasion, when exploring Dick's River, he was suddenly surrounded by Indians. Having either to surrender or to leap down the precipitous height to a bank sixty feet below, he chose to leap. Landing in the top of a small sugar maple, he slid down the tree and was able to escape by running under the overhanging bank and then swimming the stream. Adventures such as this gave abundant spice to the joys of solitude. In the latter part of July, Squire arrived from the settlements, having paid all their debts and with the surplus purchased sufficient supplies for another summer and fall campaign against the deer. This was highly successful. They did not lack some interesting experiences, but Indians were not again encountered, so that, when winter approached, Squire was enabled once more to leave with well-laden horses for the markets of the east. 
Another two months of loneliness were suffered by Daniel, but in December Squire rejoined him with horses, ammunition, and other necessities, and the pair joyously settled down for still another winter together in the dark and lonely forests of Kentucky. End of chapter 6 Recording by William Tomko